Hi everyone and welcome to episode 7 of the Judo Talk podcast. Judo Talk, Talk, Judo Talk. everyone and welcome to the very special edition of the Judo Talk podcast. Now you're most probably thinking Vince, every every podcast has been pretty special but I really enjoyed this podcast. This one is really, really good. I know I'd most probably say that but today I'm talking to Luke Preston and Luke Luke's coached Olympic athletes, world medal winning athletes, European medal winning athletes. So he's coached Karina Bryan, Ashley McKenzie, um, many players over the years. And most probably, you know, the one you're most excited about, he's my coach as well. So, but, you know, I've been really, really fortunate. Luke's worked with me as a player and as uh, as a developing coach. So this is a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Um, I want to get into it and then, you know, have a little chat at the end. But yeah, as I said, I think this is a really, really great interview and a big thanks to Luke for agreeing to do it. Hey guys, and welcome to the latest episode of Judo Talk. And today my guest is actually my coach and friend and it's Luke Preston. Say hello, Luke. Hi, Vince. Thanks for inviting me on. <laughs> what was the delay then? <laughs> Did you not hear me? We need to do that again. No, 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 no. keep going. Here's no. five. <laughs> Getting to terms with the technology. Yeah, right. No, thanks, Luke, for for joining me. Uh, so let's kick off. Let's kick off with a little bit of background about you, your judo, and sort of your pathway into coaching. Yeah, um, well, I started judo when I was five years old um, at Wrexham Judo Club. Done judo all my life since then. So. Oof coming up to 40, yeah, 39 years of judo. Um, I competed for Wales and Great Britain at every level um, through to being a British senior international. And um, I got into coaching full-time when I was nearly 30, 29 years old. But I've been coaching on and off then since I was sort of 21 with kids, really. So I got into sort of elite coaching at Camberley Judo Club when I was 29, which was at the end of my competitive career. Since then, I've coached for Great Britain at every level, I guess, up through to the Olympics. Um, I coached at the London Olympics and I've also coached for England at the Commonwealth Games um, for the 2014 Glasgow Commonwealth Games. And in this last Olympic cycle, I've also um, helped out Ireland and been a support coach of Ireland um, at some of the Olympic qualifiers, which I've enjoyed a lot as well. So, yeah, I've had a, a, a good range of um, coaching experience with different nations as well. Yeah. And so you, for those who obviously don't know our background, when I was 17, I moved to Cambly and you were still competing a little bit, weren't you, Luke? And then you transitioned into the coaching role. Yeah, I'd start to do, I think I'd started to, when you first came to Canberra, I'd started to do bits of coaching to help Mark when he was away on trips, because mm. um, I was one of the more older players, I would say more responsible, but perhaps not then, but definitely um, one of the more mature players. So I was doing bits and pieces of coaching then, but still joining in with everything. So basically, I think it was 2005 was um, Mark Earl, I should say the full his full name. It was who was 
was running Camberley Judo Club. Um, he'd gone for a, a British um, a national coaching job. He's done a lot of obviously been British coach, Olympic coach before. And he said that he would, would I be interested in stepping in to help him at Camberley if he got the role? Which I said, well, I'm not really sure if I'd be, be a good coach, but definitely, I, I, you know, I'll give it a go. I'll be up for it. And at, at the end, he didn't quite get the role this time, but he still wanted me to um, get on board with the coaching side of it. So from that point on, I hadn't really officially retired from competing. I thought that perhaps my best results were, you know, I'd probably got as far as perhaps I could do. But I hadn't, I thought, you know, I probably, at the time I thought I'd probably keep competing, do some for fun, see what happens with it. I'd lost my own uh, funding at the time. Um, I was lottery, luckily enough to be lottery funded. So I got into the coaching then. And from that point on, I never really had an official sort of retirement from um, competing. But I just sort of got into the coaching side of it, really. And it's, it's taken it on from there. So I'm probably going to have to retire now. And I'm um, nearly 45. I think you can leave it open, to be honest. I think just leave yeah, it there, just we'll in see. case. You can always sort of come back. <laughs> uh, so what, what was it like transitioning from an elite player to a coach at a, at a full-time centre like Campbell? Because you could have gone off and done other things. Like, you've got a degree in psychology, haven't you? Like, you could have gone I've on got, and be a, like yeah. a proper adult. Yes, I've always... Yeah, I, and get a, a real job, definitely. Mm. But no, I, I don't know. I, was, I think I was just very lucky to do it and I enjoyed it straight away. Um, the transition for me was was fairly smooth, I guess, because Camberley was my club. Um, I was comfortable there. I knew all the players. I had, I, I guess I had a, a really a reasonable level of respect because of my level as an athlete. And I just went into it with my own style and not really... Um, not really trying to get anything particular out of it for myself. I just was enjoying it and I wanted to work with people. And at the time I was still fit enough to practice a lot as well. So that side of it, I could sort of make an impact still with Randori practicing with people. So you used to practice with yourself and all the boys and some of the girls as well still. And for me, it was a quite a big challenge from the technical tactical side of the coaching because Mark um, took a bit of a step back and he sort of, he, he believed in me, I guess, and he sort of left me to it. So in terms of the technical, tactical content, at that time, I said to him, do you think I should do this? Do you think I should do that? What do you think? And he would say, just do what you feel right at the moment. So basically, he gave me a free reign. Um, and I guess at that point, it's um, sink or swim with it, if you know what I mean. So I just went into it, but I made a conscious effort at the beginning with the technical and tactical sessions not to really focus as much on the things that I thought I was decent at as a player um so we just left so day for a couple of weeks <laughs> but um but yeah after that I, I you know I, I just I started to build up my own ideas and I was lucky I guess I'm lucky because I've been around Mark and other great coaches um and I've learned from them in terms of technical tactical things but I've also learned you know coaching styles and and how I want to be and the main thing I sort of thought to myself was I'm you know I'm I can't be like anybody else because I'm myself. So I'll just try and do it my own way with my own style, if you know what I mean. And I think luckily for me, that seems to have worked over the years. Yeah. I think trying to emulate Mark is most probably a, a difficult one anyway, isn't it? So, Well, that's it. I mean, everyone's different in their own approach and, you know, it's not just, it's not just Mark who's had an influence on me over the years. My first coach, John Walsh in Wrexham Judo Club was brilliant with kids you know, through to 
Brian Moore, what a motivator growing up. I know Brian did a lot with you. And then Billy Cusack was my under-21s coach, you know. Um, Alan Jones is my Welsh coach for a lot of the time. I've, I've been around a lot of um, strong coaches. And, you know, I sort of just made my own style based on the things I'd learned from them, if you know what I mean. But really just trying to stay true to my own personality and my own sort of beliefs with stuff. Yeah. So what's it, can you talk us through what, what it's like managing uh, an elite centre like Cambly? I think it's different for me because I Cambly is an elite centre, but it's also, as you know, so you've grown up training at Cambly and coaching at Cambly as well. It's also a normal judo club as well. So it's not like your normal, your, your, your academies or your institutes. So it's a different it's a different sort of environment and in a lot of the um, modern day training environments now there's quite a lot of staff you know but I'm actually tend to be um by myself with input from other people for the strength and conditioning and you know we've had always had Ben Rosenblatt help us with the strength and conditioning and now David Boycott Brown helps and and and, and these they can coordinate and plan with me but in terms of physically being in the place it's often it's me so I, I guess I have to wear a lot of different hats with it and I try and balance um I try and balance that out with the coaching side of it and obviously we've got our accommodation block on site at the dojo which brings another aspect to it if you know what I mean so I for me I have to try and uh, balance making sure they do the dishes sometimes with who, who's doing um who's doing Randoria, who's doing, you know, who's doing their S&C. So it's, it's great. It means it probably has meant that over the years it's made me, in my role, fairly efficient and being able to cover all bases, if that makes sense, because I haven't been able to day-to-day -day, rely on a lot of other people. I've got a big support network with Camberley, um, with the trustees and with, you know, with things like we're talking about prescribing strength and conditioning we've got physio sponsors things like that but day to day a lot of the time it's it's just me so that leads you to I guess that leads you to um take responsibility for a lot of things that perhaps in a more um in other full-time training centers is, is not the case you know you'd get your strength and conditioning coach there all the time you'd have your physios there all the time um maybe even psychologists nutritionists performance analysis they're all, I basically have to do all of those things to some degree, but I enjoy doing them as well. And I enjoy learning. So over the years, I've learned a lot about s and I've learned a little bits about nutrition, but to be honest, if we need experts, I will I always pretty much, if we can get them in and, and help the team. So yeah, it, I guess my role is a little bit different to most, I guess, if you want to say elite coaches that people that work with British senior internationals, but it's, um, I enjoy it. And to be honest, even if we had a strength and conditioning coach there all the time, I'd still be in the gym with them because I want to see the work they're doing. I want to see how it's translating to judo. I want to see what the impact of it is. So it probably wouldn't change much more um, if I did have lots of staff, but um, I'd probably do a few more sets of bench press myself, maybe. <laughs> but so, but there might, there's, so much that you have to manage day to day with, with the elite side of it and as you said it's still a club and the club operates as a charity doesn't it how how yeah. does that pressure also impact you and running the club um i think financially um 
it, yeah, we're a charity and we're trying to, we've all been a charity since 2009 and we've got um, board of trustees. One of the guys that was really vote, um, at the forefront of that was Danny Peccarelli, who um, set us up as a charity. And we've, but basically our aim has always been that we want to generate enough money that we can be sustainable and generate that money back into the club and back into the players. So yeah, financially there's been some tough times. Um, but we've always managed to. And when I say we, that's generally, that's everybody, not me, you know, the trustees, yourself, um, all the coaches at the club have come up with schemes and plans where we can generate money to keep us going as a fun club for kids, which is what we want to be, of course. And we want to be on the pathway. We've always been on British Judo's pathway and we want to keep that um, that going, but also then to also try and generate money for the elite side of it for getting some of the players out to the world, to the world cups, the grand prix, grand slams as well. Um, and I would say from that point of view, I'm really lucky to have a team of people that have always been there with me, if you know what I mean, and supported me and given, given the club um, ideas of how to make money as well. So it, of course it's been a stress at times, but we've always managed to each year. We've been a charity um, make enough profit to regenerate it back into the club. Um, and we've been lucky to have some great sponsors over the years as well. And it must it must be difficult for the players as well because um, the players have to make the top players have to make sacrifices to be there, don't they? Yeah, it, the the top players, um, without getting in and out of the funding system, all of the elite players at Camberley at the moment are um, they're not fully funded because. The, the only way you can be fully funded at the moment is to train at the national center. Um, so some of our elite players have chosen to stay and train at Camberley. Um, so what we have to do for them is to try and generate sponsorship to get them to their the tournaments they need to get to, to get selected for, um, for the, you know, the European championships, the world championships, Olympic games. And it's, um, this British judo has allowed us to do that, which is, is good really. But, and we've, we've been able to, you know, generate money over the years from, from those fundraising events to get your, you know, Ashley McKenzie, Danny Williams, Owen Libsey, you know, Fraser Chamberlain, Nathan Burns before he switched to Ireland. We, we've, we've always done these things to try and generate money to get them to, um, the tournaments they need to get to so they can have the same chances as anybody that would be um, fully funded, if you know what I mean. Hmm. Yeah, and one of the ways, now, I think, uh, what I'd like you to do is talk about the Judo Ashes because I think the Judo Ashes is something that should be done in like Judo anyway. But obviously you guys use it as a way of raising money, don't you? Yeah, I think the Judo Ashes... um, was originally Danny Peccarelli's idea, who, who's the head of exclusive hotels, and he he um, runs Penny Hill Park. And it, it's basically, I guess, the concept, if you don't know about it, it's like a black tie dinner, um, like they used to do with the boxing events. So you've got 10 tables or 11 or sometimes 12 tables um, of people seated, and they get they basically get to get, have a four-course, sometimes five-course meal. Um, and then we each year we Camberley would take on a different nation. Now the first year we just so happened to have Australia staying over. So we did the first that we sort of said to the Aussies, were you up for this? We'll give you some free food of, you know, being Aussies. They said, yeah, we'll definitely do that. Um, 
So we fought then the first time, and that's why it was called the Judo Ashes. Obviously, in the, the Ashes for cricket, they always it's always the same. But each year we decide we we fight a different country. And what what we do is at the end of the of the meal and the end of the evening, we have to, we would say they'd have a starter main, uh, and then there'd be three contests: main course, dessert, more contests. By that time, most of the people have had a few drinks, and at the end, we sort of um, auction off the players. So you sort of get Ashley out and say who wants to sponsor Ashley. There's a mixture of business people, sports people in the room who who, who would like to sponsor Ashley. You know. Ashley will probably take his top off to get more sponsorship, that sort of thing, and that's how we do it. And that so at the end of the at the end of those sort of evenings, then we're making money for the club, but also making money for the for the players themselves, so they can get to their tournaments as well. But it's a, just a good event, isn't it? It's a good exposure for judo. I, the times that I've been, I don't think whether it doesn't matter if the people in the room know judo or don't know judo, they've all had a good night, haven't they? They've all enjoyed the experience of judo. Yeah, there's not. I, I haven't seen anything else like it with judo, and people rave about it, don't they? And they, mm. you know, the people that come. I think it's just one of those experiences where you don't often see judo in that setting. You've got high level judo. The mat area is small. We've always had, you know, uh, a proper referee. With Martin Rivers has always refereed. It, it, big thanks to him. Stefan Newbury always comes down and does the scoreboards. He's done it every year, you know, and it's been going for. Well, we started in two thousand and nine with it, actually. So it, it's. We're up to 12 years of it. So, yeah, it's, it's always been successful. And at the end of it, people always stick around. They all they all seem to love it. So I think as a concept, you could probably do it on a bigger scale. And it's something we thought about before COVID of actually going outside that main room at Penny Hill and having a, a big sporting marquee and going big scale with it, if you know what I mean. But mm. maybe we'll, we'll, we'll look to do that in the future. Yeah, I think because it's not even the same as like people in their head might have seen like the Bundesliga and stuff like it. It's completely different, isn't it? It's like it is like pro matches. Like it's just one round, one fight, you win, isn't it? It's yeah. all all left there on that one match. Yeah, you've basically got team event, usually six or seven mixed men and women, um, and it's basically who you know you can win four, three, three, or whatever it is. We don't tend to do penalties unless they're absolutely necessary. Remember, Aaron Turner was, I think, might have been groveling to uh, one of the Spanish ones and Martin had to give him a one uh, Shido. That's probably the only Shido in 10 years. But, um, yeah, we, we try and keep it open judo and um, people get into it. I guess having the um, tables near to the mats, people get right on top of it. And people that haven't seen judo before just love it. We do a little intro at the beginning with the... Um, demonstrating the rules and, and that sort of stuff and yeah it's always been a really big success mm. yeah no and we I, still haven't lost we still haven't <laughs> lost yet I, I wondered if you were going to say that <laughs> we drew once we drew but then I remembered that in cricket if you draw you keep the ashes so I wouldn't let I think it was a Spanish team I wouldn't let them take the trophy we snatched it back off them <laughs> they were halfway on the airport as well weren't they so we took it yeah, back yeah <laughs> Yeah. Um, so can we just go back a little bit and talk about like the day to day uh, running of Cambly, like the structure, because you do pretty much everything with the exception of most probably wiping their backsides at times. Like you do so much in the day. What's what's a typical day like or a week? Uh, yeah, when you say so much, it's still, you know, it's it's coaching judo. So like I've said, said all along, I don't see it as a job. I see it as it's really lucky to do it. But um yeah, I would. Uh, structures change over the 
over, you know, in, when we're in certain phases or over the years, and I've, I've tweaked things up. I guess typically the players would pre-COVID, um, they would their training would consist probably of um, four randori sessions a week, four technical tactical sessions a week, and um, five strength and conditioning. Now that's you usually two conditioning, three strength, or the other way around, if you know what I mean. And so a typical day of a full-time judo player, and for me, I guess, is they would do their technical tactical training, probably maybe the first session, if you know what I mean. Um, and then they would have a smaller break. Then they would do their strength and conditioning session. Then they would probably have some lunch and have a bigger break because some of them need to do little part-time jobs as well. And then they would have their evening randori um, sparring session for people that don't know um, what randori is. So they would fit that into it. So I would be there for all of those sessions um, and I would coordinate them and sort of work out what we're doing. Randori for me has always been easy to plan. Um, I think the technical, tactical aspects of things are harder to do for a group. And so I've mixed it around over the years. I think at the moment, I would probably say a good balance, strike a good balance between things. So um, pre-COVID times, we were tending to do two technical, tactical sessions a week where they're working on pre-agreed goals. So I'll have meetings with them every six to eight weeks and we'll readjust the goals, if you know what I mean. Um, and so that pre-agreed, so they've got ownership of those sessions. And then two sessions a week would be almost like me demonstrating or we're learning together or video or I'll bring other people in. You know, you've been coming and done a block with them on um, same side opponents. Jim Warren's been in and done blocks of work with them or I will do some work. And that'll be a mixture of what I consider the key things that sometimes I need to go back to with them or like the grip strategies or sometimes just to mix it up, we'll, it'll be things that we've all noticed together or things I've noticed and we'll, we'll go through them. So 50-50 with a technical tactical, some on their own goals, pre-agreed with me, and then some on learning. Because I think you've got to keep it interesting and keep it um, keep everyone thinking without just resorting to showing tricks because mm -hmm. tricks don't work. You need to have the fundamentals and the base. Um, so what fundamentals do you think... Uh... Are like integral like these are the things they have to know before they even think of anything else um for me what i'd always like to do say someone came and there's no right and wrong way i'd say of people do it in different ways what i try and build the players up to maybe if you've um if they've come through when you know your class they'll have done a lot of it already but if there was someone that came full-time training they're maybe 17 18 they haven't do it i think we'd work on we would do sort of reasonable amount of shadow work but only you know 10 minutes or so in a session so it's working on that your your fundamental movements for shadow uchikomi getting your balance right same in, with the neiwaza you know that sort of stuff so almost sort of going back to the basics a little bit even without a partner and then bringing that through then once they can get those sort of basics bringing them through with a partner you know your balance breaking and adding for me what is a key thing that i focus on is the fundamentals of grip fighting as well and then on top of the grip fighting is adding in the throws that will link to those grip strategies. So I'd like everybody at Camberley eventually to understand the same grip strategy. So, you know, if I said to, if I said to Danny Williams, pin the sleeve, or if I said to you, pin the sleeve, you'd know that I'm talking about you're fighting a right-handed player because you're right-handed, Danny's right-handed, and you, we're talking about pinning their right sleeve mm. pretty much because we come through the same thing. If you're fighting a, if you're fighting a left-hander, 
or something or an opposite side fighter for you or, or anybody like that, you would say, if I say go inside and sleeve to you, you know you're getting on the lapel and pulling the sleeve to you. Now, what throws you do from there is up to you and your own personal judo. And it'll be things we've worked on together or things that you've come with. But I want that structure of the grip fight as well to be um, that everybody understands that. And the same way with the Neiwaza, there's key mo- there's key techniques that over the years that I think each player when they're younger coming into, you know, juniors or cadets, you know, like your courier, Jimmy, is a crucial one, I think, for teaching strangles because it teaches people how to slide the collar and to adjust strangles. Juji Gatami, different positions from there. Hold downs probably be things like the Kashiwazaki arm trap and um, scuba specials driving the shoulder. I know probably if people are listening, some will be thinking, what's he going on about? Which I think about as well sometimes. But they're key things of of how you, for me, you develop, start to develop an elite player. Mm. So you, you're not so worried about what their favourite technique is. You're more concerned about can they do the basics? Can they keep their structure? Can they win a sleeve? Can they fight for the grips that they need and then add their judo to it? Yeah, I think I would. I think most people come when they come to you for full time. They've already got some favourite techniques, and because I'm a bit of a judo geek, still I would probably see somebody, and I would probably see. I don't know if you've got someone that's left-handed, and you know they like Uchimata and and link into it with some right-handed techniques. I would probably look at some of the top players that are on the tour or people in history. That have done that and said, I might say to the player, have you seen this player? Have you seen this idea? You know, what about the, you're, you're really good on the left and you're doing left Hayatoshi, left Uchimata. What about occasionally a right Makikomi switch from that lapel or a right mm-hmm. Sianagi switch? And have you seen this player that does it? But yeah, I, I think you have to be to some degree prescriptive, um, especially when players are a bit younger, but always within that prescription, allow their own growth and their own passion for what they want to do as well. And as they get older, as they get into their 20s, you know, if I'm having a meeting with some of those players now, I'm listening more to what they want to do, adding in my input is less. They're guiding themselves as well, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Has there been anybody that have said to you, Luke, I'd love to be like, this is my favorite technique. This is a technique I'm really going to nail. And you've had to turn around to them and say, uh, we should, maybe we should have a think about that. Maybe we should choose something different. Yeah. I try not to shoot them down with stuff, but um, there are, you know, sometimes people do come out with a few outrageous ones and the problem by the same breath of what I'm saying with, um, how we'd look at the internet, we'd look at the world tour and we try and adapt that to the fighting system. Of course, you're going to get people that see something amazing on um, YouTube or on the, and they say, I'm going to, that's going to be my throw. Well, you know, you sort of have to say in a nice way, let's try it for a bit and see how it fits in. But also have you also considered Oso Agari, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's not shooting young players down. It's just, it's, it's, I guess it's a bit more prescriptive at that stage, but you know, if someone brings an idea to me, I, I want to be, um, I want to add it into what we're doing and add it to the, to the system that we do. And I, I don't think the thing for me, although I talk about systems, um, I don't think there's too many Camberley players that are totally alike. If you know what mm-hmm. I mean, in how they fight, they've all got their own. If from the outside, they've got their own style, I think. But they've, um, I like them to all understand the same concepts. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And how do you? 
So there's obviously some players that are younger and then you've got up to the elite of, say, Ashley. How do you yeah. try and nurture that progression towards more elite? What's, what are you looking for? What, what are key, what's key for you to develop over that period? I think there's different aspects to it. I think one thing that develops the young players is play, training with the elite players day in, day out, if you know what I mean. Mm. And especially if you've got... a a, an environment where I would happily let Ashley show techniques or Danny or Fraser or Maeve, whoever yourself, when you were a player, you know, I'm not, I'm not threatened by people. They, uh, them asking and helping each other. And often at the end of the session, they'll do their own, um, you know, they'll, they'll try and work things out themselves without really asking me. Of course, they'll still ask me sometimes but I really like that and I think that's that's made an environment where people are really want to help each other to develop and learn so for those young players for having the elite players they can at something to aspire to but also if I'm talking with them so if I'm talking with a I don't know a, a young lad that's or a young girl that's 16 17 is left-handed like Ashley likes Katagrimas like Siatoshi um we can, I can say, well, why don't you, you've seen how Ashley does it. Perhaps we can integrate that into your judo as well. But for day-to-day -day stuff, I, I tend to try to keep the trainers together as much as I can. But for some of those personal goal um, sessions that we've talked about, that could only be groups of two or four, if you know what I mean, as well. So I would perhaps keep the younger ones together if I wanted to show a bit more stuff. At the same time, mix them up. How great for a... 17 year old to be a training partner with Ashley mm. so what what's the difference do you think between good and great when it comes to elite performance like so we think you're obviously thinking about top level judo you've got the athletes you're working with what makes the difference between just being a good judo player and a great judo player um, I think it's a good question and it's probably for judo, which is a blessing and a curse. It's a hard one to answer mm -hmm. because we're not, you, you know, if you're a sprinter in a, you know, in athletics, there's only, as soon as those people walk, there's certain people walk and say, sorry, I, I don't know if sprinting's for you. Just physically, you're not built for it. Whereas judo, anybody, and I think anybody or any shape or any size can be a champion. A judo because if you look at this uh, if you look at the, you've got short stocky judo champions you've got tall rangy judo champions so physically I don't tend to look at them and say yeah that's the makings of judo player I tend to and it's probably something that I favor more look at the mindset if you know what I mean mm. obviously you'd want them you know if, if someone's a total beginner and they're 16 it's going to be hard to be an Olympic champion of course but I'm sure there's cases of it um but I'm looking more for, do they want to learn? Are they constantly craving to learn new things? Have they got that will to win? You know, have they got that mental toughness to keep going? And to be honest, a lot of good players have got that as well. But perhaps great players have just got it a little bit more in abundance, if you know what I mean. And if you put those players in those situations, they've got this ability the great players of I find in judo have got this ability. They find a way to win. Mm. And you can look at that with the way judo rules change. 
So when the judo rules changed for the first time and they stopped leg grabs, there was a few players, I thought, God, their career must be over. All they do is leg grab. You know, they're, you know, in a great way, they're probably European champion. Next thing, they're European champion or European medalist again. They've just started doing dropsy and agio. Do you understand what I mean? They, yeah. they find, the great players find this way to win. And can you see that straight away in a young player? Maybe not straight away, but you can gradually pick a, build a picture up of it, if you know what I mean. And you can see if they've got those qualities. And I think some of it definitely is coachability, wanting to learn, taking ownership. And it's that massive, it's that massive desire to do it, the mm. desire to win. And I think one thing that I've noticed over the years that the, the players that are really good and even great, they make you and they force you to become a better coach, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because you cannot sit back and think, or I personally can't sit back and think that's good enough for me because I, you know, when you've got that sort of player that's that committed and that um, keen to do it and to get to the top, you have to keep delivering as a coach something that's going to help them. You know, you you owe it to the, to those players and you owe it to every player to keep evolving as a coach and keep developing as a coach. So I guess the great players or the, the very best players force you to keep evolving and becoming a better and better coach. And do you think you can teach that desire? Do you think that's something instilled from an early age of doing judo or do you think that's just inherent? That's their personality. What do you think that is? I don't know. It's, it's certainly, I think in a lot of people, it's certainly in them from a, from a, uh, probably from a young age. But um, perhaps with some people, it comes in a little bit later and it's probably linked to confidence as well. But I don't always subscribe to, you know, sometimes we fight these countries where um, everyone has their own motivation, their own goals or why they want to succeed. So sometimes we fight countries like Cuba where they're poor, you know, for them fighting and fighting in judo and getting medals, the extra motivation and the main motivation for some of them is to have a better life, you know, to get to get money to get a house we're from a country that compared to other countries is a bit more advanced and you know there's there's definitely a lot of poverty in our country but there's also a fair flu affluence but i don't think that's always a reflector because i think you could get some kid from great britain for example that's grown up maybe in in fairly affluent behavior and he could fight that cuban kid that's got nothing but certain kids from Great Britain or wherever will still have that same desire, if you know what I mean, because it's, it's an intrinsic motivation in them, I guess, that they have to, they want to, and they, they want to win and they will not um, yield, I guess. Yeah. I think I definitely agree with you there. I think it's quite a lazy response to sort of say, Oh, they're really good because they've got no other choice. I, I definitely fall in line with the school of thought that actually I think there's more reason why we should be better because people choose to do it. Like you could have gone off and done anything that you, you're a very clever guy. You could have gone on and done anything, but you chose to be a judo. That's coach. to be debated, to be honest, but yeah. But you know what I mean? Like you have opportunities, but you chose to be a judo coach. You, you decided to commit every single day to that profession and be as good as you can. So I think it's quite, quite a lazy to think, Oh, 
they don't have a choice so they're going to be naturally more motivated when actually if you choose to do something surely that's where your intrinsic motivation comes from yeah i would say so and again um people know a lot more on this topic than me but i would say definitely it's that you've got that you've got people with a big internal um desire and, and burning in them to achieve and for some people it's combination isn't it who doesn't want to be olympic champion and also make money from being it some of them probably will you know it's a combination of things but each person's individual and probably what i've learned over the years is there isn't one type there isn't just one type of person that will be that champion and sometimes when you step away um and if you see these people winning olympic medals um from other countries and you probably think oh, I, get, I reckon that person's the most professional they must train this thing it's probably not true for all of them because sometimes i'm sure you do get olympic champions that are totally you know what you would call the your carbon you know prototype of they do this perfectly do that perfectly do this perfectly everything but also a lot of the ones i've come across in olympic medalists by the same flip side, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty crazy as well. And they just, you know, they, 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 they've got that something special as well that you probably can't um, explain, but they're certainly not always the most organized or the most um, professional, but they do train hard and they do find a way to win. So it takes, I guess, there's a danger, isn't there, of fitting a player to your what your assumption is. Whereas what you've got to do is try and encourage and develop that player into being elite um, through their own way and their own style. Yeah, I go think about um, you saying about not being uh, like a carbon form of this as an Olympian, uh, thinking about what it was like uh, in Cuba when we yeah. turned up to, do you remember when we turned up to the training yeah. centre in the men's? Can you tell, right, so uh, what year did we go to Cuba to train? I can't remember. It was... I think that one, that was with um, the GB development squad, wasn't it? But with the under-21 squad, really, wasn't it? I yeah. Think. There, was some old, there was some a little bit older than those. I think Sally Conway, Gemma Gibbons, those guys. Um, I don't know if they were juniors anymore. Maybe they were under 23, but you were definitely a junior. But when we turned up there, obviously, the, we were, as we were driving near to the Olympic <laughs> Training Centre, well, there was some judo suits hanging outside and they were, the, you know, they were yellow. I think they'd gone past yellow into grey, you know. <laughs> and I said, I think I said to you, whatever, you know, half joking, I said, I bet that's the, the Olympic team's judo suits, you know. And um, But actually it was, wasn't it? You know, they, they literally... <laughs> They they trained in um they trained in almost grey judo suits. The men's dojo had a hole in the middle of the floor. Mm. Um, their weight room was nothing you would even you know think of as as even close to high performance level. But what they did do was it was they trained, didn't they? They trained mm. nonstop and they and they and they worked hard. And they what they also did there, I guess, maybe because they find it hard to have competitions and I think probably it's something we're afraid of okay you know too much is they I think in the time you were there 10 days we did two tournaments didn't we didn't mm. wasn't there an individual and a team event and that's just normal sort of stuff for them so they fight each other a lot and that, I guess that's where they develop a lot of their fighting skills without having to travel if you know what I mean but yeah for, I think it was an eye-opener to all you youngsters I know it was it was still an eye at that time I'd been around the world a reasonable amount but it was still an eye-opener to me going there and they were really welcoming to us weren't they, they you know occasionally they'd 
<laughs> we turn up and the training had changed or, or <laughs> a different time. But it was um, it was definitely, I think, for you youngsters, it it, it opened your eyes, didn't it, to it? I think so. And so going back to the training hall, when we walked in there, so I remember this really clearly. We walked in there and it was like a warehouse, wasn't it? The men's dojo. It was just like a warehouse, matted. And it was quite a long mat area. But right near the bottom, they had just some mats lifted over. And it was like wood, planks, nails. Like There was loads of stuff there. And we just had to train around it, didn't we? Like there was no... Yeah. There was no, you don't go that far. I think I like said to you boys, I think I said to you boys, if you throw someone down it, you get the rest of the session off. But, yeah. <laughs> that probably wasn't the best plan at that stage. But like they also, so they also, like they were using car seat belts for their, their judo belts, weren't they? They were car seat belts, yeah. they were rocking yeah. up. And it's the only time I've been to a trip where actually I feel like the men had the best deal. Yeah. <laughs> because it, yeah. The, the women's dojo yeah. was even smaller, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it was. And they, they, the women's dojo was smaller and they just, I don't think they even had a rope to climb. They climbed a metal pole, didn't they, for their rope climbing. So you imagine how tough that would be. And um, their mat just yeah, had the Olympians and Worlds, didn't they, on the girls' yeah. mat. It was absolutely rad, but it was tiny. Absolute tiny little mat mm. area, wasn't it? And Ronaldo was just sat there. Yeah, and Ronaldo, you know, the famous Cuban coach was sat on the side eating fruit and they were just getting stuck into it and you know you could see then it was sad in some ways wasn't it they were selling up their only real currency was their adidas sponsorship gear for their tracksuits they were selling their cuban tracksuits cuban t-shirts you know um i think darren went back in a full cuba tracksuit didn't he <laughs> um but but it's um yeah, it's an eye-opener. It does show you what, you know, what's the situation for other countries. And they're still getting, those, they're still managing to achieve achieve big results as well. So, you know, respect to them for it. It was definitely, it was a good trip. And it, it, I think it's probably one of the, that area, considering that was meant to be the Olympic training centre, and it is, and, and the housing around it was probably one of the poorest areas I've been to, I'd say. Mm. And they all, they all just fought like anything, didn't they? They were, they weren't. Yeah necessarily massive technical sessions going on but they they all wanted to scrap didn't they and that was just their yeah. mindset yeah they wanted to fight and they wanted to show the coach and I guess they wanted to be the next guy that's going to be allowed to go on tour if you know what I mean because I guess there's some of those Cuban guys that are in that squad that they don't ever get to go on the European tour um and and if they can get through and get on that European tour and get to the Olympics, I, I've forgotten. I did read years ago about what you get. I think if you get an Olympic medal in Cuba, you get given a house for life or a certain plot of land, and you know, and it's it's the rewards are there for you. But also those players would ha would still have, I guess, you know, their own motivation to be champions regardless of that as well. So it's it's always a complex answer, isn't it? About um, to me about what drives people to succeed and what drives people to um, have success. You know, what's your motivation? There was probably a lot of factors of motivation for players and coaches. You know, I, I if we're talking about coaching motivation, I want to have, um, you know, a big motivation, of course, is always to try and get big medals. But equally for me, I, my motivation is, is, is helping people and seeing their journey. You know, that's what the, I love that just as much as if we could get an Olympic medal or a European or world medal. So I think it's multifaceted for the players and the coaches and, Probably nobody really knows deep down all their motivations, but that those combined motivations make you want to do it. Mm. And do you think um, you're actually in a fortunate role at Cambly for the regard of 
for me, if you're working in a performance, if your job is performance, say you're at the centre and your job is only getting results and that's what yeah. they're judged on, you, yeah. you write, you're able to do both. You can have the performance and obviously have the welfare. Do you think they're, they're isolated or do you think they're part of the same thing with coaching? Yeah, I think I'm lucky because I'm, I get to see, you know, I don't... <sighs> I've got to 44 years old now, nearly 45. I've never really had a boss except for Mark, and he wasn't a boss to me. He was a coach to me, if you know what I mean. Mm. No, I've had to always set my own standards and, and set my own goals of performance. And I've, you know, so if you're if you're just a national coach and you've got that immense pressure to um, deliver Olympic medals or world or European medals, that is a big pressure because that's just your job. But I guess I have that pressure myself, but with less. Um, I guess there's less um, worry with it, if you know what I mean. But yeah, it's it. it I think I'm fortunate that I can always mix between different levels, but still manage to be able to touch some of the elite levels with some of the players as well. But like I say, I get equal equal pleasure from people, you know, getting onto the British under twenty one squad or, or or doing something like that. Someone trying as someone getting into the Europeans, Worlds, or Olympics. It's you know, ultimately, I, I think that's the beauty of Camberley is it's got a balance of those things. And for me personally, to work within the different areas, I think a good grounding for me was teaching in schools when I was still a player because you can, you know, you know, you know yourself, if you can teach little kids stuff, it's, it's a good understanding for later on or at least keep them occupied for 40 minutes. It's a good, it's a good grounding for later on. So, yeah, I've, when I got into coaching, um, with Mark full time, I actually thought at the time I thought to myself, I think I'm a pretty good assistant coach, if that makes sense. So I thought, you know, I'm pretty good in this role because I'm assistant to Mark and I can do this, this and this. But then when Mark um, got his job with Holland and moved away, by default, I became head coach. So that's not something I sort of had gone to an interview for. You know, I just got promoted really to being head coach by default. So then actually the pressure then is on me more because while Mark was there, the big events, the Europeans, Worlds, Olympics, all the main pressure of Camberley was on him to deliver. So now from that point on, from 2009, when Mark went to Holland, the pressure then from me becoming head coach, then I could feel the pressure a bit more. But actually what I realised is... Um, I don't mind it, if you know what I mean. I've dealt with pressure all my life from being a judo player. So it's just, you just adjust what you're doing. And do you think you would change your approach if you were, if you were employed, say, by a governing body or, you know, it doesn't have to be great, it could be anybody. Do you think you would yeah. change your approach of how you, how you coached? Um, I'd like to think not. But I guess I wouldn't know until I know when I've worked with Great Britain over the year, you know, I worked with Great Britain as a support coach um, for seven years, which is quite a long time, really, nearly a decade, I guess, as under 21s through to seniors and working with the England team for the Commonwealth Games. Um, and, th and then with Ireland, I don't think I change anything. Obviously, I, I, I know the players. I don't know the players as well. But um, I just, yeah, I think I'm probably, I'd probably stay the same. I, I guess I'm that sort of person where I'm, I'm interested in people. I would try and build rapport, as they would say, or you know, that's. But I, I don't do that as a coaching strategy. That's just the way I am, if you know what I mean. I, I want to get to know a person. I think likewise that, that links you to them for, um, for, for getting performance, if you know what I mean. 
you know, we've talked to, I think, you know, we talked about coaching philosophies before me and you. And one of the things that's key for me is mutual respect. And I think I try and I think at Camberley, it's easier for me to get respect. But I think when I've worked with the national teams or if I've stepped in to help the national teams, I can get that respect as well because I won't really tolerate not getting it. And I, But I will always give it back, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd like to, I'd like to do a little bit for me. Um, what's it like morning of an Olympic Games? You've got a fighter just about, you know, prepare. It's the most important day of their life. Yeah. What, what's it like for the coach, that process? Because obviously with Karina, um, well, yeah, you tell, you tell me what, what's, what's it like for you? I've been involved with a lot of Olympic Games, um, so I was reserved myself to, for the Sydney Olympics and I went and travelled across there um, to help the team. But And then for Beijing, I went as a, almost a training partner slash support coach with Karina. But in London, I was actually lucky enough to be sort of the Olympic coach with her and Danny. And I helped um, Ashley, of course. I wasn't in Ashley's chair then. And I also did some work with Winston. So I was lucky to be very involved with that and actually be in the village with them. So is for me i just tried to say of course there's nerves involved but i was looking forward to it. i'm always positive you know some would say stupidly positive so i you know there was some talk before london you know we've got to plan and i've heard this and i've i've i think people are probably right you know plan what if we fail and people have said to me before if we don't succeed what's it going to look like and to me i don't really think like that i just think well why we are going to succeed you know we're going to do it um i don't really want to think too much negatively about stuff and I, I had a belief in that London team um going into it but in terms of each day it's just like any other competition day especially from the Grand Slam World Cup you know upwards it's you have to be they have to know the play and you have to understand the player so you know we know it's going to be a massive day for them trying not to think about it be I tend to always to be a little bit light-hearted hearted with things of course we'll do the video analysis the day before um with for olympics it's such a big deal and for karina she wanted to know we did video analysis for a long time before london because she wanted to do it so we analyzed every single person that was in that weight group that day if you know what i mean mm. before danny didn't want to do as many we did a certain key ones and then when the draw came out what i always do is i watch their first opponent three times um the night before so Say it's Ashley, he's got um, a certain opponent. I watch if Ashley's fought him before, I'll watch it again. And if not, I'll watch that opponent fight a left hander because I know obviously know the player's reason. I'll fight a different left handers three times. And I've found over the years, if you watch three full, full fights of a person at high level, you can pretty much get all of their tactics and their, and their throws, if you know what I mean. So do that. We'd obviously do that the day before. In the morning, you'd agree the breakfast time, normal stuff, and then go to the weigh-ins. And it's just about making them feel good. I mean, at London Olympics with Danny, um, the weigh-in was a bit later on. and But the where the weigh-in was, there was a pool table. And, you know, everyone's a bit nervous and sort of thing. And he said, oh, do you want to play? Do you want a game of pool? I said, you sure? Yeah, play pool. I thought, I'm going to have to let him win, aren't I? It's his limp cheese. Like, you know how important winning at pool is. I thought, I'm, gonna, I'm missing the balls. I don't know if I've ever told him this. I'm missing out, you know, I'm on the black, missing it, but in the end, he won. Um, 
so yeah that's the sort of sacrifice you have to make you lose at pool but no it's about making them you know making them feel at ease and and you, you know them that well it's the routine you get to the tournament in those days with Karina I was still warming her up and Danny so we do the warm-up um and then we took for each opponent then we would switch on and then talk about tactics but I'm not one of those people. I've learned a lot over Mark over the day. You know, I'm not one of those coaches where it's like, oh, you've got this bird, you need to, you know. It, when the time is right, if I would never mention it the day before. If a player wants to mention the tactics, we would. And that, but I don't want them to go into bed worrying and thinking we do it at the right time. And each player, again, each player is different. So Ashley won't even watch videos. He'll just, I'll just, he'll just believe everything I tell him in terms of the opponent, if you know what I mean. Mm. Whereas um, Danny would watch his own stuff. Sometimes Karina would. So you just go through that day and you try and try and keep them motivated and keep them focused. At the end of the day, we all know it's the Olympic Games, but it also, you know, that mat area is a judo mat and it's another contest. And actually, in Rio, Ashley came up to me. It was a different situation. And at first, I've you know, at Rio, he said, oh, I feel a bit strange. It doesn't feel like the Olympics. It just, just doesn't feel like the Olympics. I said, Ash, it's a judo tournament. He said, whether it feels like the Olympics or not, it is the Olympics, but it's a judo tournament. Go out and do your judo. And actually, although at first I panicked a little bit internally, he fought well that day. You know, he, he was very unlucky um, not to get further, losing to Smetov and, 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 and doing well. But once you know the players and you get to know them, you know what each person needs in the tunnel, you know, I've done stuff with Ireland for a reason why Ben Fletcher likes getting his back slapped. He's got a massive back. So that takes a lot of effort, but you know, some players don't want, they won't want you to, you know, grab them or, you know, I'm not a hands-on sort of person. So I would never do that sort of stuff unless, you know, Ben likes to get his back beaten to a pole pole, do it for him before he fights or, you know, Ashley needs a few key words, you know, Danny doesn't need much if he was fighting because he's, he's ready to go to war anyway you know it's each person's different so for me it was nerve-wracking a little bit but I, I enjoyed it as well and I guess coaching at Europeans and Worlds things like that before it puts you in that mindset of doing it but um, yeah it's 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 all for me everything I would do anything those days and those build-up days to make sure that player felt in the right place to perform whether that's making them playlists for Karina of music sounds ridiculous you know anything that you need to do to get that player to perform I would do in on that day if you know what I mean even losing a game of pool I can't believe you've done that actually to be fair I know I've never admitted that publicly I think I would struggle with that more than anything else you wouldn't lose <laughs> you just seven ball them and then say go and weigh in <laughs> Well, that's why I'm not that, not that good a coach. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the day, so Danny and Queen obviously had contrasting experiences. Yeah. What's it like for you once, you know, once the job is being done in that scenario and you, you know, you, you finish that part, what's it like for you? Yeah. What are you feeling like? How's it work for you? It's tough and it's like each day, each one, you know, if you get a great result, um, my philosophy, and I've said to you before, I think, is that I don't want to get too carried away with um, with victories and too down about losses. Now, it's harder to say that with the Olympic Games mm. because the Olympic Games is, you know, the be all and what you've been 
you know what you've been aiming for so at the end of the day it's really it's about being there for the player again Danny was very upset you know my goal for Danny our aim for him for that Olympics was to try and get top seven if you know what I mean yeah um which we thought was he wasn't you know it, he he had a hell of a fight with the Olympic um, bronze medalist from from Beijing and he lost he did it gave it everything but at the end of it he didn't really want to talk to reporters he upset one reporter a little bit so you're dealing with those situations if you know what I mean um calming them down and with Karina's it was totally different because she'd had the medal and it was just a big relief for her we went to the sort of the press conference and we went to um you know I've, I always remember it. it's like we went from I'm still in the Olympic suits for Karina's day and um you know I was buzzing I was delighted for her I was chuffed for the club chuffed for the for the um for the country her family and you get taken to team GB house if you know what I mean mm. and there's a presentation of all the medalists Ben Rosenblatt was there some of the players were there um and it, they give you free beers they've given they've given me free Heineken I remember the team GB um I'll probably never work, do stuff for team GB after this anyway <laughs> the, the team GB lady said to me you know, congratulations. She said, just so you know, um, in this Olympic gear, you can't be seen drinking alcohol outside of this building. And I said, yeah, of course. Yeah, no problem. About three hours later, everyone was in some nightclub that Ashley had booked. Uh, I'm in my Olympic suit. Kayla Harrison's in there with a gold medal. Karina's got her medal. There's some lads that have blagged it in Team GB shell suits, you know. And um, But the next morning, because of um, for this is where it's a little bit strange for a coach, the next morning after all that success, I had to leave the village. Not because I drank a pint in my Olympic suit, because the, um, because the spaces for coaches is so limited, I had to literally move out of the village. And then I was gone and then, and then life goes on. And, you know, two weeks later or 10 days later, I was coaching the juniors, uh, junior 57s at the heart of England. So that's, that's the way it is for me. It's always been, always been between different levels, but always what I've been blessed, I guess, or lucky enough to be able to sometimes and, and keep going at, to the elite level. If you, that's how it, that's how it feels. And what's it like, especially now, it's even more strange with COVID and that. But when you're working with, say, say somebody like Ashley, where you've got a really good relationship, you know he yeah. what, what he needs on the day. And then in yeah. some tournaments, you can't actually go with him and sit mat side. Yeah, it's tougher, but I've gotten used to it. And I, what I tend to see is the positive in the sense that I'm really happy and lucky that I can still do, you know, Grand Prix, Grand Slams, the level I, I have to stop coaching Ashley at Europeans, Worlds and Olympics, which I guess are the three biggest. Um, but I, I, you know, Ashley's mat side coach um, for those tournaments is Jamie Johnson. Jamie does a really good job with Ashley. You know, Ashley knows that Jamie wants him to win and he, Jamie will, you know, be 100% there with him and drive him on. And what's great is Ashley's done some brilliant results with Jamie in his chair. So when Ashley got his Paris um, Grand Slam bronze, Jamie was coaching him, you know, so that to me, that's what I want. I don't want them to be overly reliant on me from a personal level. It's tough to sort of step back a little bit, but what I tend to do is then it's coaching from afar or, you know, if I'm at the events, it will be interacting with Jamie and Ashley, if I'm afar, I'll be texting. I guess it's called text coach. You know, I'll text Jamie. This is this is my fight plan. What do you think? Jamie will come back with me with, yeah, I think so. What about this as well? Good idea. Then I'll speak to Ash and he'll speak to Ash. And then in between fights, I'll text Jamie. That with this, this, watch this guy. I'll do video analysis and send it to Jamie. He'll have done his own analysis as well. But 
Um, so we try and do it like that as like a little bit of a team, if you know what I mean. So it's, um, it's tough to some degree to step away at that very peak event. Um, and if I hadn't coached at London, perhaps I'd feel differently about it, if you know what I mean. If I'd never been an Olympic coach, maybe now I'd be, it would be harder for me. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it is what it is in that in sense of those rules. And like, we try and make the best of it. And Ashley is lucky, really, that he can work with Jamie and me. And Jamie have got a, a good relationship to try and get Ash through, if you know, if you know what I mean. And that's what's happening at the minute. Because of COVID, I'm not allowed to travel. So um, it's coaching from afar at the events. Yeah, it must be so hard for you, though, as well. Like just thinking about the, the time, the investment, because when you you say that you're not working, you're doing it because you love it, but it's still time away from your family. It's still time away from the judo club. There's still so much, so many sacrifices that you have to make as a coach. And then right at the last minute, you can't do that last bit of job, which some people might think is the most important part, or they might think it's the most enjoyable mm. part, you know, it, it must be difficult. I think it is difficult. It can be difficult, and but I'm all, I'm prepared for it because I've already known for this whole Olympic cycle pretty much that come Rio, whoever goes uh, shows how much I, I switched. I am come Tokyo. Mm. Uh, Rio was the one before. Yeah. Um, come Tokyo, that I won't be in the chair. If you know what I mean. So I understand that, and I, I'm I'm prepared for that. And all I truly want is for those players to achieve the best they can achieve it's not about me in a sense and that's not in the sense of like oh I'm you know look selfless blah 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 I'm proud that I've been an Olympic coach I'm lucky that I've been able to do it and to actually have somebody that won the Olympic an Olympic medal so for in that point of view I've done that but all I care about is those players getting their best result on that day and that's why I'll still travel out there you know I went to Rio as, as a in the as a almost like a spectator and as soon as um it was lucky with because Ashley was after Kitadai each time, the Brazilian. Mm. So there was security at Rio. But um, as soon as Kitadai came on, the, all the security guards turned around to watch the fight. As soon as they turned around, I sprinted down to the front and got to the front row, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and um, they turned back round and they just couldn't be bothered saying anything. So then I could sort of shout and sort of help Ashley from the front row as well. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a guess it's it's tough it, perhaps for to some for some of the players it's maybe harder for them than me but i want them to be developed enough that it's a, it, regardless of whether i'm there or not they can perform and i think that's been shown that's been shown over the years that they can do it and especially um with ashley you know winning things like the his european medals without me in the chair and his paris medals without me in the chair but I've been around I've been there and I've been some would say a bit vocal in the crowd but we do what we do we do what we can do if you know what I mean mm. yeah and how's it been over this last year because there's so much uncertainty around whether even Tokyo will go ahead how do you keep yeah how do you keep their sort of head in the game you know with it? I, I think it's been a good indicator for me of of um you know the dangers of when people retire because for I could see with different members of the elite players that I've got, they reacted differently. And some that you thought were more stable couldn't deal with lockdown one and others that you thought, oh, this might crack them a bit. They were quite resilient with it, if you know what I mean. So it was one of those cases where 
we didn't know nobody knew what was next we all thought i think i remember you and i chatting i said all right well let's we'll go again in september if you know what i mean mm-hmm. or you know september at the latest and it dragged on and on but what i tried to do was keep the group together as much as we could um through strength and conditioning you know challenges which ben rosenblatt again and david boycott brown did a weekly challenge so they all were putting it in their group from wherever they were um we i started looking at videos and putting things in the group for them to say what do you think of this who can um who can anybody recreate this on your brother and sister so henry wakes was launching his brother around every week in you know in in the northwest so it was just trying to keep that keep the focus um until people could come back together a bit more again and, and and switch the goals a little bit, but no one had the perfect answer. And I guess everybody struggled with it. Um, I was kept busy probably the same way you were with the online, you know, coaching the online stuff and having my daughter Lola throw me around or vice versa. But it's, it was one of those things where you just had to make the best of it. I personally thought I haven't been left at home for a, I don't know, 20 years really where I've been at at a time at home. So enjoy your time at home and and try and make the best of that situation. And that's the message we tried to get across to the players, but it was tough and it's still tough now, isn't it? I think lockdown three has been the hardest for people because we didn't think it would happen. And then it goes and it, and it carries on, but we're all in it. We're all in it together in terms of the judo club and the judo world. And I think, we will get through it together and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. Yeah, I hope so. That's for sure. And how do you think, how is Cambly, not the elite side, like, do you think the club's ready to get back to it? What support do you think you might need? Because you are a charity and you depend on people paying their subs. You depend on, you know, all these things to keep it operational. How, how do you think that's been impacted? I think we're in a more fortunate position than a lot of places because we are a charity and we got support at the beginning, at the very beginning in lockdown one, we got support from Sport England and Surrey Heath have also given us a couple of um, grants to keep us going. Um, And that's really been really, that's really kept us going. And we've uh, we've been lucky also that when we took things online, um, more so in lockdown two and three, um, more live online in terms of Zoom. Um, a lot of our members have stuck with us and have kept paying um, their training fees for the online sessions. Mm. So coming out of lockdown three, as a club, we'll be in a good position, whereas I know a lot of smaller clubs and perhaps clubs that are businesses um, have really struggled because they couldn't get as many grants or they couldn't get as much support. So I just, you know, I'm forever thankful that we were lucky enough to and um, in a position where we could get some support with it mm-hmm. um, and the coaches themselves because of our employment status that the, all the coaches at the club could get um, some support if you know what I mean yeah I've set for obviously yourself you, you know being being a, a director of your own company and there's people like yourself some people have fallen through the the net of support haven't they um, and I think some judo people, for a lot of judo people, they've fallen through the net of support. So unfortunately, some clubs won't come back from it, which is a, is a big shame. But Camberley will, you know, it's 
I think somebody once likened Camberley to a cockroach to me. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think they were trying to be, I think they were trying to be, um, I think they were trying to be uh, positive, but they were basically saying you, you can't kill it. And um, I would subscribe to that. Well, I think I think that on that comparison, I think uh, yeah, I think it's time to end, mate. Thanks, for that. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, thanks, Luke, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks, Vince. So there we are, the end of episode seven, and you know I've got a lot of gratitude for Luke, um, not just for doing the podcast, you know the support. Um, that Luke and Camley have given me uh, as a player and helped me develop as a coach. You know, Luke, that's where I started to learn about coaching on the mats at Camley, working with the juniors. And Luke also, you know, he's always allowed me to work with the elite players there, which has been really, really great. And, you know, I think, I think it comes across really well in this interview and it's something that I've experienced firsthand, is that people, you can know judo, you can really understand judo, and as an elite coach, that you that's like your minimum, you must do that. But I think what Luke, Luke manages to get across, and definitely what I feel as a player, is that Luke actually builds relationships with the players beyond just being an athlete in a competitive career, and you know, I think that's really, really important. That gives value and it builds that bond. You know, when I remember if I was competing and I didn't do very well, I was obviously really, really annoyed at myself, but I was also felt a huge amount of disappointment for Luke, like I had let him down. And there wasn't anything that he made you feel, it was just the the connection that you, you developed. And I think the more and more I speak to coaches, I think, building relationships at the elite level is so important and you know how how would that make you feel building those bonds and building uh, olympic medal winning athletes and you know major championships and then after all that work that you put in then not being able to do that last bit and it's not that you're unproven at that level you're just not allowed to um sit mat side so it it was really it's really really great to to get luke speaking uh on this podcast and as i said i i really really enjoyed it i think as a coach his desire to want to be better and do better also also says so much about the commitment you know the players that are really good or even great make you force you to become a better coach and that sentiment I think epitomizes the the coaching philosophy and how definitely something that I really want to try and work towards and and strive to be better and do a better job at whatever level I work at. And I think if you're a coach or you're a player, I think that's something that you can really really resonate with and and get behind. So yeah, so as I say, I enjoyed this. It's been a great podcast for me. And what did you guys think? What what was the key message for you? Okay, I really, really want to hear your thoughts on this. Um, but also as well, in the next coming episodes, I'd like to hear some of your recommendations on who would you like to hear on this podcast? Now, I've had some people turn around and say, I'd like to hear Ono or something like that. 
my Japanese isn't great. Okay, so it, you know it, there are obviously uh, language barriers uh, that we have to make sure that we can cross here. But who would you like to? Would you like to hear from an international referee? Would you like to hear um, from a physio, a doctor, a strength and conditioning coach? What really? What do you guys want to hear next? Okay, um, next week's going to be a little bit different. I've got a marketing guy on here. So judo's just opening up in the UK, um, and there's going to be some clubs that are going to need some help getting some players and judo people on the mats. So next week, slightly different. Uh, we're going to talk about how we can help fill your clubs up. Um, and you know what I would say as well for judo players listening. Tell your friends about judo, <laughs> you know, get them into your judo clubs. Judo in the UK is going to need your help, okay? So we need to fill those mats, we need to bring them along, you know, drag them to your classes and let's get judo back up and running and even better than before. So I'm going to leave it there, guys. Have a great one and I'll speak to you all next week. Judo talk, talk, judo talk.